Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. He didn't write any of the books in the Bible. Not a single word that he spoke is recorded there either. The only thing we know physically about him is that he was not circumcised, for to do that would have been to surrender to the pressures of those who brought false teachings to the church, those who were bound to the law of Moses. His name is mentioned just 13 times in the scriptures, all of them in Paul's epistles and half of those in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're told very little of his qualifications, his background, his attributes, or his accomplishments. And yet a feast day, this day, is set aside to honor him in the church year. Saint Titus, pastor and confessor. Why him? Why now? Why still? Adam and Noah and Abraham all have days in the church here too, but they're not feast days. The same with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, David and Elijah and many other of the heroes of the faith. They all have days of commemoration, but not special feast days where we go so far as to change the vestments and the paraments and have special readings and a special collect. So what gives anyway? Why Titus, who is only briefly mentioned in the scriptures, and not, for example, Moses, who not only wrote five lengthy books of the Bible, but whose life and work is described in four of those books? Our Synod's website actually has a very good discussion of why we observe special days in memory of those who have gone before us in the faith. And it also explains why many of the seemingly lesser New Testament saints are honored with feasts, while many of the giants of the Old Testament have merely commemorations. I quote from that website. In every case, it is important to remember that when we honor the memory of the saints, we are thereby honoring the Lord and God and Savior of us all, who called these men and women to be his own. He redeemed them and sanctified them, and he blessed them to serve to the glory of his name, for the benefit of others. There are some saints in particular whose lives on earth are so closely connected with the earthly life and ministry of Jesus that their stories are literally part of the gospel itself. Along with Mary and John the Baptist, perhaps the most obvious examples would be the apostles and evangelists. In the history of the church, including the history of our Lutheran church, the commemoration of these saints have been observed with special distinction, always to the praise and glory of Christ Jesus and his gospel. These days are really treated as feasts of Christ. That is to say, as days when we remember, celebrate, and give thanks for the life that our Lord Jesus Christ lived for us in his flesh. For these reasons, it is appropriate to observe these feasts with the sacrament of the altar, in which the Word made flesh draws close to us and gives himself to us in much the same way that he came and lived among the apostles and other disciples in the New Testament. By contrast, the commemoration of other saints 
from the Old Testament and throughout the history of the church on earth are normally observed in daily prayer within the family, in the Christian day school, in the chapels of our colleges and seminaries, and in parishes where it is possible to gather for matins or vespers during the week. End quote. Titus, then, fits the bill. Although we have no evidence or any real reason to believe that he ever personally interacted with Jesus during our Savior's earthly ministry, his lifespan likely overlapped a little bit with that of Jesus' time, and his service in the apostolic ministry under Paul's guidance took place during the New Testament era. Through Titus, not only was the gospel to be furthered on the island of Crete, as we heard in today's epistle lesson, but he also was pivotal in several other important New Testament events. He participated in the preaching of the gospel at Troas, at Corinth, in Macedonia, and in Dalmatia, as well as in the collection of money in Greece for the relief of the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Titus was also Paul's fleshly example of how an uncircumcised Gentile could be a faithful believer in Jesus, standing with Paul in front of the other apostles against the accusation of false teachers. These men claimed that having Greeks like Titus, who had not fully committed to obeying all of the commandments and requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law, could not be saved. But at a critical juncture in the history of the early church, Paul argued that it was not necessary that someone first become a Jew before he could become a Christian. James, the brother of Jesus and then the bishop of Jerusalem, agreed, as did St. Peter and St. John. And from then on, God blessed the rapid spread of the gospel among Jew and Gentile alike. So then, what does that mean for you, you American Christians living 19 and a half centuries after these events and more than 6,000 miles from Crete, where Paul sends his letter to Titus? And for that matter, what do, what do any of these lessons in today's scripture readings have to do with you, sitting out there in the pews? After all, in the first reading from the book of Acts, Paul is talking to pastors in Ephesus. He's bidding them to be vigilant in attending to the congregation and warning them of dangerous teachings and teachers that would threaten their faith and salvation. In the second reading, we hear Paul's guidance to Titus, telling him to seek and to appoint men of certain qualifications to be pastors in all of the towns to which he might journey in Crete. And finally, in the Gospel lesson two, Jesus is appointing missionaries to journey throughout the land, proclaiming God's peace and the coming of his kingdom. So, isn't all this stuff about, about pastors and apostles and missionaries, that is, about professional church workers? Leave us out of it, pastor, you might be thinking. Let's just get through this sermon and rush through the prayers and hope that they aren't too long today and then zip through the Lord's Supper so we can rush home and get on with those thousand and one other things we have to do in our busy lives. Well, it's exactly that kind of thinking which means you really need to hear what both Paul and Jesus have to say today. The things about which Paul and Jesus admonish, warn, and 
instruct these pastors are things that you'd better pay close attention to also. For if you don't, there's a risk that you won't get the gospel. And if you don't get the gospel, you don't get Jesus. And if you don't get Jesus, you can be drawn away from his cross and from his empty tomb, setting aside the forgiveness of your sins and God's gifts of salvation and eternal life, exchanging them for worldly things or for a false spirituality. And what a tragedy that would be. It is ever so important that all of God's church, both pastors and lay people alike, keep careful watch on the flock. For it is the history of the church at large. It is the history of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and yes, even of this St. Paul parish, that fierce wolves will attempt to enter the sheepfold. It has happened before and it is likely to happen again. Just as Paul guided Titus in choosing overseers for the congregations, you also must be vigilant, helping and uplifting those who serve you today when we stumble. For there may be times when we will not be hospitable, upright, holy, self-controlled and disciplined lovers of good. We might very well become arrogant, quick-tempered, drunk, violent, or greedy. At such times, we will need your Christian love and admonishment, leading us to repentance, to reconciliation and restoration. And you must also keep these things in mind for the future. You must, your children must, and all those who come into this fellowship must. For there will come a day when we will go the way of all flesh, and God will raise up for you new servants, stewards, and overseers for you. More than any other earthly behavior or attribute or action, though, the most important thing that you can do for your pastors is to learn and to know what St. Paul termed the trustworthy word through whatever means it comes to you. This means reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting the scriptures through your own Bible reading, of course, but also in studying it with your brothers and sisters in this flock, in earnestly seeking to immerse yourself in the scripture-laden liturgy of our worship, week in and week out, letting no worldly thing get in your way, in deeply delving into the Bible-rich words of our hymns, in absorbing the good doctrine taught to you in the creeds and in the catechism, and in hearing the salvation offered to you in the bloody crucifixion and the glorious resurrection of Jesus as it is proclaimed to you in the preaching and in the teaching. All of these are means by which you too can hold firm to that trustworthy word as taught, as Paul put it, and can not only help your pastors build up your brothers and sisters in faith, but can also hold them accountable to God and to the church. This is not a threat to your pastors. It is only a threat to their sinful nature and their limitations. It is actually a great blessing to know that we too will be led back to the foot of the cross if we should ever stray. Paul was telling Titus how important it is that those who teach and preach in Christ's church do so in accordance with the revelation that we have received in the Holy Scriptures. Note how Paul closes that final verse in the second reading today. 
to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Instruction in sound doctrine is to proclaim the fullness of God's counsel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. All Scripture is God-breathed, we are told. It is both Spirit-given and perfect, and it all points to Christ, who was led and uplifted by that same Spirit to live a perfect life so that He might atone for your sins in His suffering and in His death. And He sends that same Spirit to us today, giving us the fullness of who He is in word and in sacrament. To rebuke those who contradict it is the ability and the strength not just to combat false teachings which go against the Word of God, but also to use His law to admonish and condemn the words and the actions of those who contradict God's trustworthy Word with their sins. For living a false life as a Christian in full view of our believing brothers and sisters, as well as being poor witnesses of the faith to the world around us, can be every bit as dangerous to the salvation of others as is the teaching of a false faith. They will know you as Jesus' disciples by your love, of course, and that is how we always hope to be seen. But they will also know you by your outward sins, and they will make judgments about Christ and about His church from every bit of hypocrisy and every bit of evil that you show them. That's why the Christian life must be one of continual repentance, Never thinking that we are so good as to not need grace and mercy every moment. Comfort and confidence in our salvation by the merits of Christ? Absolutely. Cockiness and self-assurance? Absolutely not. And so Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, sent Titus to Crete. Titus was to spread the truth and the godliness, that is, the righteousness which that truth provides, to all of those he encountered. And he was also to multiply the church in Crete through the appointing of new pastors throughout the island. This process continues today for the sake of God's elect, many of them not yet identified, many of them not yet even born. New Pauls and new Tituses repeat this cycle of training, equipping, sending, encouraging, and guiding so that Jesus is rightly brought in word and sacrament to the Cretes and to the Austins of the world. So rejoice in Titus. Rejoice in Paul. But most importantly, rejoice that you have been granted to hear and to receive the message they once proclaimed through their heirs and successors yet today. For it brings you forgiveness, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. In his holy name, amen.